I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined. In her most recent book called Why Religion? A Personal Story, renowned scholar Elaine Pagels tells her own story of how she discovered her faith. I felt like I was living on a much bigger scale, you know, like bursting out of the world that was almost flat, a flat earth that didn't have any kind of spiritual dimension. We'll also hear how this faith was tested by tragedy and how the discovery of ancient Christian texts reshaped her notion of religion. Then, are there ways to translate religious practices into our increasingly secular lives? Divinity scholar Casper Turkile says you could start with a tech Sabbath. On Friday night, I literally turn off my phone, uh, I turn off my laptop, I hide them in the bookshelves, um, and I light a little candle, I stand in my living room, I sing a little song to myself, and it's like entering into a, a different reality. The power of belief and the comfort of rituals in our everyday lives. All ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Born into an atheist family that prized science, Elaine Pagels had very little exposure to religions as a young child. But that changed when she was 14 and went to hear the Reverend Billy Graham speak in San Francisco. She was stunned by the revelatory words, and in a moment, her world was forever changed. Pagels would become a leading scholar in early Christian thought. Her best-selling book, The Gnostic Gospels, was a radical retelling of the words Jesus spoke. In her latest book, she recounts her own story, how she was surprised by her ability to get through the tragedy of losing her son and her husband, and how she feels that what you do is more important than what you say you believe in. The book is called Why Religion? A Personal Story, and Elaine Pagels, professor of religion at Princeton University, joins me now to talk about her journey into faith and why she's not giving up on religion. Well, Elaine Pagels, welcome to KCRW. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I, I want to jump into some of, of your early memories, and especially when you're thinking about religion and spirituality. And, and as I read the book, um, you you start pretty early on talking about an experience listening to Billy Graham speak in a huge stadium out on the West Coast. And I was wondering if you could, if you could go back there in your memory and tell us what, why that was such a formative experience for you. That was a remarkable, that was the first time I experienced the sense of the power of religious experience. Before that, I'd been in a family in which my father had given up religion for Darwin. As soon as he discovered Darwin, he just said, oh, these old stories are just crazy old folk tales. Who needs them? So I was brought up to think that religion was basically obsolete and lived in a world without it. And I did the best I could with poetry and music. I love that. But I had no sense of the power of those traditions, or not much, until I went rather by accident to a Billy Graham crusade. I didn't know who he was, but I had friends in high school who were going to San Francisco. And I thought that was going to be more interesting than Palo Alto on a Sunday afternoon. So I went, and it was quite stunning. What, what came through to you in that moment? What did you feel? He, first of all, he, he said he was going to say things that would sound foolish to educated people, and they really did. He was talking about science, which in my family was, was sort of, that was God. I mean, my father was a biologist. He, he, he loved Darwin. Science was the highest form of wisdom. Uh, he was a you know, professor of science at Stanford. And and suddenly Billy Graham was saying, science has created hydrogen bombs that have killed 100,000 people in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute, <laughs> that's true. You know, science has driven people into creating huge weapons. That doesn't make it bad. It just means that there's a side of it that isn't, simply the world's greatest wisdom. Right, right. And so if, if I have this right, you, you kind of went through a born-again phase, correct? Well, I did. I was quite stunned. I mean, it was, <laughs> I was 14 years old. So, so when Billy Graham says, well, you know, you can have a totally new life. You can, you can just live on a whole different scale and sort of come out of your family and your ordinary world. And it was absolutely wonderful. He said, you, know, you can be born again. Um, and I, I was just thought that was great. It sounded wonderful. 
So I went down and it was very emotional. You know, that's the tremendous emotional power of the music and the preaching of Billy Graham, because he was pretty remarkable in those days. And I felt like I was living on a much bigger scale, you know, like bursting out of the world that that was almost flat, <laughs> a flat earth that didn't have any kind of spiritual dimension. Um, my parents were horrified, which may be added to the pleasure of it <laughs> to some extent, or to the excitement of it. And I suddenly felt I was in a world, you know, there was God, there was Satan, there was Jesus. I had these, this new family in Christ. It was quite marvelous for a while. For a while, right. And, and, and what comes to mind, of course, in, in this book for me was uh, your relationship with a young man named Paul, who was an artist, who was a free thinker, a really interesting character, who, who tragically died in a car crash. And, um, and you were suddenly uh, forced into a very awkward conversation with some of your other born-again friends. Um, can you tell us what happened? Well, yes. I mean, um, this was a close friend in, in a group of ours who was killed in an automobile accident after a party in Palo Alto um, with uh, groups of musicians that we knew. And um, I went back to the church and I said, you know, this thing has happened. They were... That's terrible. I'm oh, so sorry. Was he born again? And I said, no, he was Jewish. And they said, well, then he's in hell. And I felt like I'd been smacked in the stomach. And I was really shocked. So I just walked out of there and never went back. I knew it, whatever, whatever had drawn me there had nothing to do with what they said. And I just didn't trust anything anymore of that. So I left. Yeah. And then to me, what's so interesting about your story is that somehow you were drawn back to religion, not necessarily at first as a practitioner, but as a scholar. So what, what was churning inside of you? Where, where there was still this interest in, in what, what this was all about? Well, you know, about four or five years later, I just thought, wait a minute. There was something about that experience that really was very powerful, not just that it opened up the imagination, really. One of my closest friends was a theologian, started what's called Black Theology, James Cone, at Union Seminary in New York. And, and if you asked him what theology is all about, he'd say, well, it's about imagination. What else is it about? It's about a spiritual dimension in your life. And that seemed to me... There was something about that experience that seemed to me very powerful and important. Um, and so I thought, what is it? Is it about Christianity or is it about religion? or what? Anyway, what do we know about that stuff? So I didn't want to go to religious people because they all had a different brand to sell. That's how I felt at the time. So... I went to graduate school to find out what we knew about the early Christian movement. And it was a secular school, that was on purpose. And what I discovered were the secret gospels that totally captivated me. The, the Gnostic gospels, I called them because we didn't know what else to call them. They'd simply been suppressed for 2,000 years, and they spoke to me very powerfully. Yeah. So for our listeners that have not heard of the Gnostic Gospels, this is something you've written on extensively. It's, it's fascinating stuff. What are they? In particular, I know that the Gospel of Thomas is one that really spoke to you. Well, it did. This was a discovery. Same year the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in Israel, about 1945 and 46. There was another discovery in Egypt of, uh, of a huge library of over 51 ancient texts. Most of them are um, religious texts attributed to Jesus and his disciples. Some of them are Jewish texts. Some of them are sacred to the god Hermes or, you know, um, the god Asclepius, the Egyptian and Greek gods, because these came out of Egypt about 2,000 years ago. And among them were some some texts that were called Gospels. And, and they were about claimed to be about Jesus anyway. And the Gospel of Thomas was just a list. It said these are the secret teachings which the living Jesus spoke and which his disciple Thomas wrote down. 
And I started to read these. And what struck me was one, one saying in which Jesus said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I thought, oh, <laughs> you don't have to believe that, but it just happens to be true. Um, it struck me psychologically. Um, now I think it also had a theological dimension to it. But anyway, it was, it was a saying that, that really seemed to me powerful. There were other sayings like it in which Jesus says things like, just look at what is right in front of you and the, hid, and the mysteries will be revealed to you. These are like Buddhist koans, you know, wisdom sayings but somehow they really spoke to me. And I thought, oh, that's a whole different kind of teaching that I've never heard. And it was I discovered that it had been completely suppressed by the bishops of the church thousands of years ago. Um, that's why we never knew about it. Yeah, I mean, I think partially what I'm hearing in those, in those sayings is we're kind of breaking out of this tradition of duality or of that there's a there's a medium between you and a greater power or God, a priest or something, but rather that there's something essential um, in us that's alive, um, that's that's part of something greater. Is, is that kind of what what some of this is getting at? Yes, it is. And that's what was that. That's what was called heresy, that because when you look at what they, when they, you know, Jonathan, when they talk about the word orthodox, whether you're Jewish or Christian or Muslim, orthodox literally means straight thinking. And, and what most people who use the term and like it mean by that is that humans are nothing like God. God and humans are completely different. Uh, we're creatures and God is creation, creator, and so forth. This text, just as you say, it speaks about some something within each person. It's understood in this text as the image of God in us, which is, uh, Genesis says, God created humans in his image. So this is, well, there's an image of God in us, which isn't anything visual. It's a capacity to connect um, to to connect with the whatever power, whatever energy there is in the universe that brought everything into being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I know this this was a, a vital discovery for you or or interpretation of of how you brought these texts out, how you wrote about them, and and then you know one thing you write about so heavily is is. A tremendous amount of loss that would occur um, in in your adult life as well. You had to deal with the loss of a six of your six year old son, which was then followed by the death of your husband in a tragic climbing accident. And I wonder where your faith was, where your thought of spirit was when you were going through these intense moments of grief. Well, that's that's a good question. It hadn't come up until much later, because I guess initially what spoke to me in the Gospel of Thomas was the connection between, well, simply the identity, you might say, between what we call nature and God. One of the sayings uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, um, I am the light that was before all things. I brought forth everything. Everything comes from me. Everything returns to me. Split a piece of wood and I am there. Lift up a rock and you will find me. And since I grew up loving nature, being a Californian, you know, living on that beautiful coast in the, in the mountains and by the ocean, I felt that connection uh, that many of us do. So that was that was initially what spoke. But later, as you said, you know, people who go through unexpected trauma often say they lose their faith in God because they have some kind of image of, I don't know, some kind of big person who watches over people and makes things happen or not happen for them. I mean, that's not at all what I sensed in these sources. It was something much more 
alive and much more mysterious than that. And when dreadful things happened, I did feel that, that I had to bring forth what was within me in order to survive. And that there was somehow within any of us a capacity far beyond what we are aware of. You know, I've heard you say that in times of profound grief, it's it's hard to find kind of to find religion in that moment. It's hard to find meaning in that direct moment. Is that correct? Conventional religion would have been very hard for me at that moment. What I wanted to write about after those losses, which were so shocking, and and I felt they would. If if any if anyone had told me those things would happen, I just would have thought, I can't live through that. That's just not even possible. But my late husband and I, it was a wonderful, wonderful marriage. Um, we were together 22 years, and he died in a hiking accident, so it was very sudden. Um, if anyone had told me those things were going to happen, I would have just quit right then, you know. But by the time of my husband's unexpected death, we had already adopted two babies after our son's death because we felt we needed children to give that, to give, we felt that we needed children to whom we could give what we couldn't give to our son Mark. And so then I had responsibilities and had to bring forth things. And I didn't want to write about grief in that book, that memoir. I wanted to write about the surprise that, that we can survive things we think we couldn't survive. For me, it was a surprise. <laughs> yes. And at the same time, there's a lot of interesting things you write about in terms of how you were able to lift up your spirit in all of this. You you spend a lot of time in the mountains of Colorado, and uh, this is a place I, I, I grew up very nearby, and there's a wonderful Trappist monastery up in the mountains and with some extraordinary monks who I think have a very different take on the practice of Christianity. I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the time you spent there, some of the things you learned, and I know what was a very, um, very hard time for you. Well, if you know the monastery, it's quite remarkable. Um, there was Thomas Keating, who was a remarkable monk with a very deep spiritual sense of, of his being. And he taught me how to meditate. I was actually introduced to the monastery by Robert Mann, who was the founder of the, of the Juilliard String Quartet. And he, he was joking that he'd been invited to become their first Jewish monk. But he went up there with his son, and they he got to know the monks. And he was playing music for them and invited me and my husband to come and hear the Juilliard Quartet play for the monks at the Trappist Monastery. That's how I got to know them. And I, I, Catholic tradition is, is something I was unfamiliar with and kind of hesitant about because I was brought up at least Protestant in culture, if not in religion. But those monks had a depth to them and a power and understanding that was way beyond language. And they taught me how to meditate. Yeah. It's very rare to hear someone say, I learned to meditate from a Christian. There's a really interesting line I've heard you say before. Um, when, when, you talk about, uh, when you talk about religion, perhaps in your own life, you've said that belief is overrated, and perhaps what's more important is practice. What does that mean? Well, that's, I'm glad you brought that up, Jonathan, because when you say religion, a lot of people think, oh, you mean all that stuff about Jesus is the Son of God and this and that. Or you mean, do you believe in God, or do you believe in this, do you believe in that? Well, that's what people ordinary mean, ordinarily mean by religion. I, that's not what I mean. Um, when I think about religious traditions, I think about these cultural traditions that are consist of practices, of prayers, of rituals, of ways to meditate, ways to act. Because really, it's Christianity that's that became identified with a set of beliefs. If you're a Christian, they'll say, well, do you believe in God? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? That, to me, is not the focus. For me, is not the focus. It's, it's about a set of 
understandings and a set of values and a way of living and experiencing life that you find, for example, in Buddhist practice, you find it in Muslim practice, you find it in Jewish practice and Christian practice. Uh, Judaism is not primarily focused, as I understand it, on belief. It's, are you kosher? I mean, how observant are you? Or are you not observant? It's, what do you do or not do? It's not about, you know, a bunch of beliefs in your head, simply, which is the way people ordinarily take it. That's why, I mean, belief is overrated. That's so interesting. I mean, it makes me think, can one be a part of of a church or of a different tradition, but not necessarily have um, a certain set of beliefs, but rather... Oh, yes. I, I, I actually like rituals very much. Uh, not all of them. I'm sure some of them are very boring. But a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, um, a wedding, a funeral, these are powerful in every culture, and they're created... As, as a series of acts to help people through transitions. Uh, transitions into birth, into marriage, into adulthood, into death. They, they, they have great effects, or they can. But you don't have to believe in them, <laughs> in, in, in the sense of having a set of beliefs in your head. Uh, I just, I find that a pretty superficial understanding of what these traditions are about. You know, I, I, I know that ritual is really important to you, and you've written uh, about something that fascinates me, which is how we can create rituals. Is it something that can be new, something that can be meaningful, even if it's not necessarily rooted in thousands of years of tradition? Do you think that's, that's possible? Oh, certainly. I mean, people do it all the time, as you know. I mean, they create rituals of marriage, for example, and they create rituals for people who, for, for the survivors of those who die. Um, yeah, and it can be very powerful if you, if there's something one can do at a powerful moment like that, that speaks to the event. For example, um, when our six-year-old son died, we, we had a game we liked to play, which was, this was out in California. There was a a store we called the Jewel Store, and the Jewel Store sold beads. Uh, they were they were diamonds and rubies and emeralds and sapphires, um, all made out of plastic and glass. <laughs> so you could buy lots of jewels to, to make stuff. And our six-year-old son thought they were quite wonderful, so he, he liked them. We used to play games at Jewel Thief and so forth. And after he died, I went to that store and got a little paper bag of these jewels. And we walked all over the, the places that we remembered him uh, where we were living in the summer, out in the pasture where the horses were, and uh, in the house and in the tree where we used to, which used to be an airplane, and you know, for us, and all kinds of places that had special memories, and and we we each took handfuls of these jewels and left them there. That that was a ritual we created that spoke to us about the preciousness of those memories. Well, Elaine Pagels, thank you so much for the time this morning. We really appreciate it. Well, it's good talking with you, Jonathan. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Elaine Pagels is professor of religion at Princeton University and the author of Why Religion, A Personal Story. Coming up, the rise of secular rituals in America. That's ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Elaine Pagels about how religion has provided meaning in her life, but can you practice religion without believing in God? Have CrossFit and SoulCycle replaced going to church? Are we seeking spiritual guidance in the workplace or from our fitness instructors? 
Casper Turkheil is a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab. He says sacred rituals are popping up throughout our secular lives. But this isn't necessarily a bad thing, he says, especially when they're done with the right intention. Well, Casper Turkheil, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. So we just heard Elaine Pagels talk about the importance of creating rituals in our own lives. They don't have to be rooted in a traditional religious institution, but just things that bring meaning to our lives. Casper, I know this is something you've been thinking about for a long time. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your work? Absolutely. I grew up really as a non-religious person. I grew up in England. Uh, I'm gay. So my, my you know response to religion wasn't a good one as a young person. Sure. Um, and I've really fallen in love with the different wisdom traditions and practices uh, that, you know, religious history gives us. Um, and I think in particular, because I see how useful they can be to answering so many questions that we have as, as you know, 21st century people uh, living in the U.S. So whether that's around, you know, how do we reconnect to what's most important? How do we structure our day so it has a sense of rhythm? Um, how do we feel connected to something that's bigger than ourselves, that, you know, takes us out of our kind of self-obsessed uh, or selfish perspective? At least that's true for me. Uh, and so often it's these religious practices and these rituals that give us ways of doing those things that feel incredibly moving to me and, and important. Well, I mean, it makes me think of, I think, one of the most interesting things that uh, Professor Pagel said, which is that belief is overrated. Mm. What's more important is practice. Um, why don't you tame, uh, just kind of riff on that for a second? Well, this is why I love Elaine's work, because I, I completely agree. And the reason why we have such a focus on belief is that, you know, the United States, although it has a lot of diversity in terms of religion, uh, is still a very kind of Christian culture. Uh, and in the, the Protestant history, you know, when the Reformation happened and Protestantism kind of broke from Catholicism, there was a real focus on, on belief. Um, you, you might remember that idea of in faith alone, right? Luther's kind of famous right. idea that it that was rejecting all of these hocus-pocus uh, uh, rituals of the Catholic Church, and it was in faith alone. And so that has shaped how we understand religion in the United States. When you ask someone, are you religious, the subtext often underneath that is something like, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Um, okay. And so it's it's very much about a sort of assenting to a set of, um, you know, proposals, theological proposals. But that's very, very different when you look outside of Christianity or even outside of Protestantism. So if you look at Buddhist traditions or Jewish traditions— uh, or, or even uh, Catholicism, you'll see that practice, what you do, is much more important in kind of deciding how religious you are instead of what you believe. Um, so Jewish folks might think about, you know, do you, do you observe uh, particular dietary laws, right? Do you keep the Sabbath? Uh, and whether you believe in God, sure, that's important, but the way you express your Judaism often much more is about what you practice. And and I think that's helpful for us to think about in this kind of new moment of where people are kind of mixing different spiritual traditions or they're finding their own way is to really think about what are the rituals that anchor your life and that structure your your ethics as well, uh, right? Do you have a practice of, of, of generosity? Uh, do you have a practice of welcoming in the stranger into your home? So, I mean, do you think one could still call themselves a Christian if they did not believe in God? Well, that is a very big question. I, <laughs> I think so. And in part... Um, because we often have the idea that, you know, first you believe something and then you start behaving in a certain way. When actually what happens often is that you start to behave a certain way and it shapes your belief system. And for me, when I look at the kind of the great myths or the great religious stories, they're really a way of, of, of a, making sense of a worldview. They're kind of stitching together a set of principles um, that then help you make sense of your life. And so my understanding is that when we start to practice a certain way of living, that we soon start to build a belief system around that. And so I don't even want to kind of break them apart too much because they do end up coming together quite a lot. Um, but I, I, I think, yeah, you can live a Christian life um, by, by living out those practices, knowing that it'll shape, uh, shape your belief as well. Yeah. One thing I know you, you've done a lot of is you've seen how religious rituals are popping up in secular places. And I think this is super interesting. I mean, places like CrossFit or SoulCycle, how, right. how have these different institutions um, kind of learned to mirror um, what, what's happened in more conventional religious practices? 
This was totally fascinating. So when I was a student at Harvard Divinity School, my research partner, Angie Thurston, and I started to look out into the secular world to see where especially younger people were coming together to build community. And very, very quickly, we started to hear uh, about fitness communities, about arts groups and justice groups that on the surface seem very secular, right? Working out, you're there to maybe get strong, lose some weight, be healthy. But when you start to look deeper, we started to see more and more parallels with what you might expect to see in a congregation. So people are getting married and having funerals in their CrossFit box. Uh, People are raising money for neighbors uh, uh, at their soul cycle. Uh, uh, kind of spinning class, people were turning towards their fitness instructor to help them navigate a difficult divorce or uh, the grief after losing a loved one. And Mm. so suddenly these people who were there, you know, who are trained in in how to help you lose calories and build muscle are accompanying you through, you know, a really big life transition for which, by the way, they have no training. Um, And so we started to see these religious behaviors show up in these secular spaces. And then once we started to see that, we started to look at how how, uh, you know, you could even start to see it in, in the way that these communities talked about themselves. So CrossFit's uh, co-founder famously said, you know, if people call us a cult, that's fine. I, you know, I, I think we are a cult. And of course, with Soul Cycle, the clue is in the name, right? It's Soul Cycle. So these organizations are already uh, kind of um, self-consciously engaging in spirituality and, and religious traditions as a way of shaping their community. Now, you're someone who has studied, I think, kind of root texts and has a pretty full understanding. You you attended Harvard Divinity School. So, I mean, did you look at this with a skeptical eye or did you also say maybe there's some meaning to what's going on here? I mean, I was always really interested to see what people are actually doing, not what they should be doing, but what they're actually doing. Um, And so I was always, I was quite open to to see what was happening. Um, And for me, what's interesting about this is that there's a narrative out there that we are in a kind of secularizing moment, that more and more people are less and less religious. And that's true when you look at, you know, how people self-identify, when you look at how many people attend a congregation. But if we expand our lens, if we start to see these communities like these fitness groups we just talked about as sort of part of a religious uh, ecosystem suddenly we start to see that religion isn't in decline it's changing and so when we start to see you know the workplace as a site where people are practicing meditation uh, when we start to look at fitness groups as places where they're marking major life moments suddenly the world becomes much more interesting to me because we start to see how spirituality and religion are showing up in those places now i want to be clear not everyone going to the gym is having some sort of religious conversion experience. Right. But nonetheless, I think these are indicators of honestly where the future is going. Um, more and more people describe themselves as having, you know, multiple spiritual influences. Maybe they were born this, but they're married to someone who comes from that background. And by the way, they practice a whole other set of rituals inspired by Buddhism or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're starting to see just a very different religious landscape, which honestly, a lot of the religious institutions that we have now are not quite yet ready to engage. So there's yeah. a growing gap between these institutions and the experience of individual people. Well, I mean, one thing, though, that did slightly concern me is the idea that a CrossFit instructor is somebody who you would turn to as as kind of a, a counselor or a therapist or a right. priest. It's people that don't have the training necessarily to guide someone through a divorce or through the loss of a child or through you know, another death uh, ritual. So to me, I mean, there are some kind of natural red flags in here. Would you agree? Oh boy, uh, and some. Uh, I mean, th- <laughs> this is something we've been talking about for some time. You know, it's it's not just an inadequacy in helping someone through a, a difficult moment. I mean, there are so many stories of, of CrossFit trainers, you know, starting romantic relationships with people they train, which of course is the first big no-no in a congregational setting. Um, so I absolutely agree. Now, the question is, do we say, well, we just don't want this to happen at all in terms of, you know, seeking out that kind of pastoral accompaniment or or counsel um or do we say look it's happening how can we respond to it in a responsible way and and that's very much my approach is to think about okay if if people are seeking out that kind of spiritual guidance you know from people at the workplace from people in a gym how can we uh, support and and give some 
theological reflection tools to those fitness instructors and those people in the office so that they can be useful and do it responsibly. Um, because I think the argument of, oh, we just have to make church or synagogue or mosque, you know, we just have to make it better and people will return. I, honestly, I think that boat has sailed. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I know there's something in this idea of creating ritual, of imbuing it with meaning that, that I know fascinates you. So if we, if we, okay, we look at SoulCycle CrossFit as one example. Um, what, what's, what's another example that you would propose, ways to start bringing this stuff into our life that you think that is important? One thing that I'm really passionate about is finding ways to translate ancient traditions um, so that they feel particularly alive and, and relevant for our experience today. Um, so one practice that's been really important to me is thinking about a, a tech Sabbath. So more and more people are conscious of the, the challenging relationships that we have with our, with our phones, right? I think more and more of us are comfortable saying, yep, I'm addicted to this thing. You know, it's the first thing I wake up with. It's the last thing I say goodnight to. And, uh, and I want that to change because I know it it makes me anxious or I know it shortens my uh, my attention span. And so for me, uh, since reading a wonderful text called The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel, great Jewish theologian, um, I was really inspired to find a way to, to kind of create a tech Sabbath for myself. So on Friday night, I literally turn off my phone. Uh, I turn off my laptop. I hide them in a bookshelf so that they, they you know, they're not looking at me and tempting me. Um, and I light a little candle I stand in my living room, I sing a little song to myself, and it's like entering into a, a different reality. Um, Heschel described it as entering into a palace in time. And especially during this pandemic, you know, it's been when we can't move in terms of space, it's been really helpful to move through time in this in this way. Um, mm. So having that rhythm of every Friday night to every Saturday night, turning off my phone, um, it's been a real comfort and, and it's given structure to, you know, these months where sometimes you don't know what day it is. Uh, so that, that's a ritual that's become very important to me. And I think, you know, you see more and more people trying to find a healthier relationship with technology. I wonder, you know, th this makes me also think about what what's the difference between a ritual and just a good habit? Is Is there a different way of thinking about these two different things? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, and both are good. You know, I don't want to say that rituals are somehow better than habits. Both both are important. You've got to brush your teeth every day, right? But it doesn't mean sure. it has to become a ritual. So the, the way I think about it is to, to take a habit and make it into a ritual, um, you've got to find an intention, which can be as simple as, you know, I want to feel connected with uh, my spouse as we have dinner, or I want to remember, you know, my, my grandmother who passed away a few years ago, or, you know, any sort of intention. I want to feel grateful. I want to feel uh, connected to my neighborhood, whatever it is. So start with an intention. Then find a way to pay attention while you're practicing the ritual. So this is very often why in religious ceremonies, you have lots of kind of um, multi-sensory stimuli, right? You might have beautiful incense that smells good or music that, that you listen to or something beautiful, a painting or an icon that you look at. These are all ways in which you can kind of design for a presence and, and a paying of attention during the ritual. So that, that keeps your, your presence and your awareness. And then finally, repetition, repeating the, the practice over time. So that triptych of intention, attention, and repetition, I think elevates something from just an everyday habit to something that's a little more uh, uh, kind of anchoring that helps us to connect with what matters most. What's the fear of just not having rituals? I mean, I, I love the way that you describe the importance of making them, but I guess mm. just to step back even, why, why do we even need these? Right. It just Is it just a pretty decoration, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I definitely believe that just the, the, the joy of experiencing them, you know, the, the beauty, all of that is, is important. But rituals are not just decorative, they're formative. So when we practice these things, it's, it's not just for fun. It's because we believe that they will shape us to become the kind of person that we want to be. So often in a ritual, we're actually practicing a different way of being, a different world that we're living in for that, for that moment. So for example, you know, look at the Eucharist, the, the breaking of the bread in, in a Christian uh, ritual, right? The cent central Christian ritual. What that ritual represents is a reminding of everyone who's participating that they are inherently connected to one another, that they are one body in Christ, to use that religious language. Um, and so very often these rituals are, are shaping our awareness, they're shaping our, our ethics even, uh, to become the kind of people that we want to be. So I think of them not just as, you know, something nice to have, but as part of a, you know, a, 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 an ethically committed or a justice-seeking life, we need these rituals to sustain and guide us.
Yeah. Well, you know, um, recently I've been reading, whether it's been in The Guardian or The New York Times, about the rise of something called a kind of a spiritual consultant, which I don't know <laughs> if you're comfortable with that term or not, but you're kind of thrown into the mix. So. Right. <laughs> So here we are. And just to give our, our, our listeners some background, this, this might include um, this consultant going to work with corporations or businesses and trying to bring in some of this language into mm -hmm. these um, for-profit institutions. So um, is this the kind of work that you're interested in doing? And can you say more about it? Yeah, it's it's definitely part of what we do. Um, my organization with my two colleagues, Sacred Design Lab, thinks about how can we, you know, really build the, the spiritual infrastructure of the future, right? If if the congregation was the center of gravity for religious life over the last number of hundred years, what is the future going to look like? Where are we going to find meaning and connection? Um, and one of the really interesting things is just like those gyms, the workplace is a place that more and more people are turning to um, to try and find guidance uh, in life in all sorts of ways. You know, if you think about where Americans have learned, especially white Americans, I should say, have learned to talk about race, uh, right? Where we've learned to navigate gender dynamics or, or practice listening skills. These are often things that happen in the workplace, especially white collar work workplaces. Um, and so it's, you know, not surprising that workplaces are starting to offer yoga classes or meditation classes or, um, you know, they, they might uh, uh, provide a venue uh, to, to practice, you know, good uh, relationship skills. And so whether, <laughs> whether we want to or not, these things are happening. And so my stance is to think about, okay, how can we responsibly accompany and direct people um, to, to deepen that expression of their spiritual life, not to base it in the workplace, right? I'm not looking to have, you know, all wide company rituals adoring the CEO. That is absolutely not what we're looking for. But it is a place to think about if someone is actively coming here asking questions about you know, how do I grieve? Or um, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm turning 50 and this is a really big moment for me as I, as I, I change roles within my family, within this team. Uh, you know, I want to find some way to express that. It's a, it's an opportunity, I think, for us to to meet that person where they are and to and to share some of the gifts the gifts of religious tradition in a way that is responsible. You know that that has not just one religious tradition at, at its heart, mm -hmm. but has that kind of breadth. Um, I, honestly, I think that's the responsible thing to do. You know, I, I think there's a lot of what you said that's really fascinating, and yet I have this memory of of this was probably in the mid around 2006. I, I visited mm -hmm. the Google the Googleplex for the first time to see a, a yes. friend of mine working there. And I, I remember seeing how every part of his life was kind of being co-opted by Google. He was yeah. getting all his food there. They were doing all of his laundry. He was getting massages. I think there were even medical staff there. And it kind of seemed like, therefore, work became the fulcrum of life, which I don't yes. think a lot of people necessarily want. And so while I also hear this notion that, you know, we want to bring in ritual or, or, or ideas of spirituality into the workplace, I also kind of pause, too, and say, hey, shouldn't there be a separation of these things? Do we really want to uh, fill up the work bucket with all of these important parts of life? I, I'm sure this is something you've thought about, too. Oh, we think about it all the time. Yeah. And and again, I want to say it's kind of a, a, a false option that we're presented with because it's not a question of do we want it to happen? It's it's happening. What do we do mm -hmm. now? And mm -hmm. so, you know, w one way to, to answer that question, say we really don't want to center even the physical workplace, right? You, you talked about those kind of tech campuses that have everything from, you know, your hairdresser to your therapist. Um, right. So one way that you could answer that question, say, okay, well, how about we use the workplace as a connecting or a conduit towards a place where people can center their community or, or their spiritual life. So, you know, it could be as something as simple as if someone brings those questions to their workplace to say, well, you know, here are five or six, you know, local places, local communities that, that you might want to check out that are great places to join. And, you know, we can somehow, you know, subsidize your, your retreat that you want to do. So th there's still ways that companies can support employees in their spiritual life without necessarily centering it in the workplace. I want to kind of go back to one thing you mentioned too, which is um, the idea that these days um, religion or spiritual traditions feels like we're kind of at a buffet and we take a little bit of <laughs> one and we take a little bit of another. And yeah. I think there's something that on one hand is very liberating about that. Uh, I love the idea of notion, but I also, I also hear this other part of me want to say that uh, 
to really grow deeply, sometimes there is some merit to going deeply into one tradition, to looking uh, into what it has to offer, to follow a path of growth. Um, yes. Can you say or just reflect on that a little bit more? I, I think you're so right, Jonathan. And and again, this is I don't want to I don't want to paint a picture of one is better in some way than the other. If 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 you are someone who is really eager to go deep, to really commit to a way of life. And of course, you know, great examples of this would be a monk or a nun, right? Someone who's really, really going to give their whole life to a specific tradition. I completely agree. It makes sense to go deep in one place. But again, when we look at the world that we're living in, well, the first thing to say is religions have never traveled through time you know, uh, in isolated tubes without interacting with one another. We sometimes fall into a trap of looking back at history and thinking, well, Islam developed here and Judaism there and Christianity over here, you know, uh, and, and far beyond. Everything has always been interacting and shaping and changing one another. So in, in one sense, this is no different, right? Religious traditions are coming into contact with each other in people's lives and and they're being shaped by it. And that every tradition was once an innovation. So again, right. it's it, 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 this is not a not something that's been static forever and suddenly is crashing apart now. But the mm. truth is, you know, more and more people are growing up in interfaith households. You know, so uh, people were coming to divinity school saying, well, I'm Presbyterian and Catholic, or I'm Hindu and Jewish. Um, and of course, those traditions are not necessarily set up to kind of accommodate or, or support someone like that. And so folks kind of feel lost in the middle. And then the, the much bigger issue is people who will say, well, I'm nothing in particular, but, you know, I still go home uh, to my parents to celebrate Christmas and Easter. But actually, you know, I find most meaning canoeing out in nature and reading poetry sure. you know who who knows what it is um and so i think that the, the question really depends on who you are as an individual if you want to go deep in one place that's great and if you want to find some way to responsibly inhabit multiple practices from different traditions i think it's absolutely possible um i think the challenge is and this is my biggest worry in this question as we personalize things more and more, right? You have your perfect mix of the things that you like and I have my perfect mix and our friend has something else. We don't share any of it. And so it becomes more and more individual. Um, and and that is my biggest worry is that we end up so isolated and personalized that this, you know, growing isolation and this this the rise of loneliness over the last few decades uh, continues apace. And, and ultimately, um, those practices don't, don't fulfill us in the same way because they're not shared. Well, I guess I, I want to end our conversation back in the present day right now. Um, we have a pandemic on our hands. We also have this incredible Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. And earlier uh, this year on the show, we had one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter, uh, Melina Abdullah, in the LA chapter on, and she described a ritual that I thought was extremely moving. It was called the pouring of libations uh, oh, yes. in these Black Lives Matter movements uh, and also the reading of names and calling upon mm -hmm. some kind of Western African um, spiritual traditions that I don't think a lot of folks knew much about. Yes. I, I, I'm sure this is something you've read about, but it, it just it really occurred to me as such an interesting and beautiful example of maybe some of the things you're talking about, which is finding the meaning in the ritual in the present day. Absolutely. And and this is something that's so I'm so glad that, that you spoke with her because Black Lives Matter is obviously a political movement, obviously a cultural movement, but it loudly claims its spiritual essence. It's a spiritual movement, too. Um, and as you say, drawing on Ifa practices, drawing on uh, some some black judge practices, too, but really kind of doing that same melding together of different traditions uh, and drawing on indigenous practices. Um, and just like the workplace and these gyms are sites where I think we we see spiritual innovation happening. I think justice movements like Black Lives Matter is another. Um, and in each case, there's all sorts of questions of who has authority to lead? You know, what are the boundaries of participation? Right. Um, there's new languages that are being created in the streets in these movements and new rituals that are, that are shaping people's engagement. And I think particularly in a justice movement, what inspires me so much about the Black Lives Matter movement is that they are 
practicing, uh, you know, a, a connection between outer change and inner change, that, that sense of personal resilience and outer political uh, change. Uh, and, and that's something, as someone who was an activist many years ago in the climate movement, I really struggled with because I was just focused on, on making change out in the world and experienced a big kind of uh, big fat burnout <laughs> as a young person where I, I felt like I had failed and there was nowhere else to turn. And so I think, you know, as more and more people are engaging with with racial justice, that importance of finding spiritual practice rituals that sustain you in that work of change making is more important than ever. Yeah, and I think that one thing we've seen that's been so successful in in the Black Lives Matter movement and something you have been talking about just right now is that these are shared rituals. These that's are things right. in which you're bringing together thousands of people. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and it's, you know, that that's one of the magic magic things of ritual. In ritual sometimes we can experience things that we can't experience in any other way. There's a, you know, creation of a sort of magic circle when people are uh, practicing a ritual together. There's a quality of presence and I, I think a, a possibility for transformation that makes us as humans coming back to these practices again and again. Yeah. Well, uh, to end with this, I know that this pandemic is still going on and I think that on one level, we might see the pandemic as people being forced to kind of end old rituals. I can't attend the mm -hmm. things they do, or they're not going to church, or they're not they're not going to whatever it could be. But maybe at the same time, we are also seeing the creation of new rituals. Um, do you think this could be an important time for people to kind of also think about um, the practices that they want to bring into their lives, which are currently just so changed from what they were a year ago? Absolutely. I think we've seen that from the very beginning, you know, back in the spring as folks started to to take a daily walk through the neighborhood, you know, and start to notice the way in which a particular tree started to, to have, uh, you know, leaves and then maybe blossoms or a particular garden that they might pass on the walk as it started to change through the seasons. Um, you know, I think that that's that's already one kind of practice that's definitely become more common. Um, but I also hope that it, you know, it orients us towards one another in a neighborhood uh, in mm -hmm. a way that I think certainly for me, it was very easy to ignore living in a, a you know, busy place like Brooklyn, where, where so often we don't know the people that live next to us, especially for more, more recent arrivals like myself. Um, and so I've delighted in, you know, starting to have regular card game nights with some of the other folks in our building uh, who we created a little bubble with. And, you know, those rituals don't always have to be enormous you know cathedral like intense religious things it can be the, the rhythm that gives our life shape and meaning and, and i hope all of us can find more opportunities to to anchor ourselves in those well casper Kyle, thank you so much for the time today really appreciated the conversation thanks jonathan those are great questions casper Kyle is the author of the power of ritual and is a co-founder of the sacred design lab well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastion at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastion. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.